I'm like, oh, what the f- what the hell am I doing racing my bike across the country or like all the other work that I'm doing pulls me away from my home all the time. And every time I go home, I'm like, oh, I should be here. This is where my culture is. This is where my languages are. This is where my people are and the ceremony. But for some reason, the pull is taking me away. So maybe, you know, I don't know what the path is. I just trust that the path, I'm supposed to follow it. We're doing good. (laughs) Welcome to the Bounce Forward Podcast. I'm Michael Leach, dad, author, speaker, and performance coach, aka the Be Audacious Guy. And in this show, I sit down for casual conversations with athletes, adventurers, activists, and performers, sharing inspiring stories of endurance and perseverance. These conversations are as diverse as our guests, diving deep into what it takes to bounce forward from injury, illness, or setback in pursuit of becoming one's strongest and truest self. So pull up a chair, get on the trainer, or just kick back and listen in as I sit down with these bold and passionate humans, pushing the limits of what their mind and body can achieve, inspiring listeners to bounce forward with courage and fortitude. Don't call to come back because they never went anywhere. To bounce forward. To bounce forward. Yeah. That's right, Gwendolyn. We're doing good. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Bounce Forward podcast. I'm your host, Michael Leach, and we've got another good one for you on tap here today. I don't know about you all, but we're still shaking our head in disbelief after yesterday's time trial at the Tour de France, where Jonas Vindigo put in a big dig on Tade Pogaccia. Uh, If you haven't been following this year's tour, you're certainly missing out. It's always special for me to share the tour each summer with my daughter and my wife. I've been tuning in each summer since I was a little kid with my dad, and my mom always likes to remind me every July of how she used to record the stages of the tour on VHS tapes for me, and she'd mail them to Mammoth Hot Springs, where I was working as a ranger naturalist in Yellowstone National Park, so I could see each stage and then go out and relive it myself. Uh, This one has been fast and furious, and it's certainly been one of the, if not the most memorable tours any of us can remember, and it's surely going to inspire a lot of people to get out and ride. And if these riders haven't inspired you to do so, tune in on Sunday. The eight-day Tour de France Femmes begins, and I'm sure those riders are going to inspire you. And if they don't, perhaps today's guest, Alexandra Houchen, will. As you'll learn, Alexandra is an ultra-endurance mountain bike racer, and she's just coming off a record ride in the single-speed division at this year's Tour Divide. But Alexandra is far more than a bike racer, and in this episode, we'll talk about a range of topics, including the Indian Child Welfare and Indian Relocation Act, body image, a ceremony and racing, sense of place, and what it looks like to live in two worlds. For Alexandra, that's the ultra-endurance cycling community. 
as well as being a member of the Fond du Lac Band of the Lake Superior Ojibwe people. We'll talk about the Colorado Trail and the Arizona Trail, the former of which she's won three years in a row, and we'll also explore the mental side of racing for days at a time. I hope you all dig the new cover art and find it fresh and clean. It's certainly a better fit with the Be Audacious website and the direction we've been going with the show. Speaking of the site, if you or any athletes or performers in your life are looking to build a stronger mental game, I'd always love to team up. You can learn more about my coaching, my mental performance coaching, writing, and speaking at beaudacious.com. And as always, if you want to show us some love and write us a positive review or give us a strong scoring star on Apple or Spotify, I'd be humbled and grateful. I do want to make note that this was recorded, I want to say in, in March, uh, might have been February, end of February. We wanted to come out swinging with the Bounce Forward podcast, and so I recorded uh, a good 10 to 12 episodes before we launched episode one. So um, you'll hear a reference to some winter weather. It's not wintry anymore. It's, it's pushing 90 degrees here in Bozeman, Montana today. I'm about to get on the mic for four days at the Montana Long Course State Championship Swim Meet, where I've got the privilege of emceeing finals night. Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where the competition is going to be thick and the swimmers are going to be firing and it's going to be a, a really special event. So with that said, let's jump into this conversation with Alexandra. And as always, we'll catch you at the end of the show. Okay. Is that recording on your end? Are you seeing that? Yep, I see it. A little nice. Squadcast. <laughs> it's a win already. It's a win already. The technical difficulties on these podcasts have been have been through the roof. So this is exciting. All right, head up, eyes forward, feet moving. Uh, let, let's ride. Let's ride, Alexandra. Welcome to the show, Alexandra. It is such a pleasure to share this time and space with you. Uh, after a deep freeze here this last week, it's actually a pretty balmy day here in Bozeman, Montana. We're supposed to hit 40 degrees. How's it? And uh, where in the world are you today? Well, I am in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm at my friend Kirsten's house and it's like oh, so sunny jealous. and I don't know, maybe like 60, 65 out there. Oh, nice. it, was, it was uh cold in the morning and she has a hot tub out back. So we like sat in the hot tub and drank oh, our coffee in the cold. It was great. You're teasing me now. Oh, wow. Well, it sounds like you're in a lovely part of the world there in the Valley of the Sun. So before we start talking story, let's do an introduction. For those who don't know, our guest today is Alexandra Houchin. She lives in Cloquet. Is that, is, am I pronouncing that right? Cloquet? Yep, Cloquet. Yeah, Cloquet, Cloquet, Minnesota, on the Fond du Lac Reservation. I don't remember when Alexandra first came on my radar, but it's been years. I believe it was not long after your first smoking fire. The smoking fire is a 400 mile plus bikepacking race in Idaho's rugged sawtooth country. I'm an Idaho boy, so uh, that, that's a race I haven't been a part of yet, but it is high on my list. Uh, Alexandra is a powerhouse female, uh, and she's an inspiring human who from afar truly appears to be in the midst of becoming her truest and strongest self. Like so many of our guests, Alexandra isn't a one-trick pony. She's multi-talented and wears a number of different hats. She's perhaps best known throughout the cycling community as an ultra-endurance mountain bike racer. 
She's taken on the most adventurous, rugged, and gnarly bikepacking races in the country, like the Colorado Trail, the Arizona Trail, and the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart, the 2,700-plus-mile Tour Divide, traversing the length of the Continental Divide from Canada to Mexico. In a cycling world that is often homogenous, vanilla, and the same, operating in an echo chamber in a sometimes copycat circle that often leads to feelings of exclusivity and exclusion, Alexandra is refreshingly real, authentic, and true to herself, throwing off the shackles of any cycling norms and doing things her way in a way that, to us here at our home, is very inspiring. But Alexandra is far more than a bike racer. She's a proud citizen of the Fond du Lac band of the Lake Superior Ojibwe people. And she's openly and vulnerably sharing how her cultural identity shapes the way she moves through the world. She's a storyteller who's passionate about working towards greater food sovereignty and bringing awareness toward the social injustices that this country have and continue to push upon native peoples. Alexandra's a deep thinker. She's a rider of a bike and a rider with the pen. So I can relate to this person uh, as somebody who wears both of these caps. She creates art in many different disciplines, including sewing and painting. And she's out there pushing her mind and body to the limits, inspiring people of all walks of life to dig deep, lean in, and stay true. And I truly believe she embodies what the Bounce Forward podcast is all about. So, Alexandra, thank you for being here. I've really been looking forward to this one for quite some time. I was, I was awfully stoked when you responded to that, that email inquiry. I know. I was joking with some friends last night because I, I often just say no to podcast interviews. Um, just often I feel like they get out of context or I get so busy in life where I don't even have time to maintain my friendship. So, like, why would I, like, why would I talk to a stranger yeah. But they're like, oh, he caught you in a good mood day. So well, like, yeah, we, feel, <laughs> we feel fortunate. We feel fortunate. So I like to start each episode with a tip of the hat, a nod to my counselor, my mentor and friend, Dr. John Wimberly. John likes to say that there's only three solutions to any problem. Change it, leave it, or accept it. John also likes to say that acceptance is allowing reality to be as it is without requiring it to be different. You don't have to like the undesirable circumstances, but there comes a point in time if we can't change it or leave it, we often have to accept it. So I'd love to hear how this quote resonates with you, Alexandra, or perhaps uh, something you'd be willing to share that's happened of late in your life that you've had to accept. Um, let's see, acceptance. I feel like that is a really alive idea. Because even if you accept something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you like it. Um, and sometimes you can try to change it. So, like, I get the I get the three ways to approach it, right? You leave it, you change it. And what was the other one? We first want to yeah. see if we can change it. If we can't change yep. it, we're often going to leave it. And then if mm -hmm. we can't change it or leave it, we're often left with acceptance. And I, I often okay, say okay, sometimes yeah. sometimes that acceptance has to be, sometimes it can be quite radical as far as, there's times we just accept it. Sometimes we embrace uh, our reality for what it is, even when it's undesirable. It's an opportunity to grow, but often it's just, okay, this is one to accept. Yeah, yeah I think, okay, so acceptance. 
maybe my most intimate relationship with acceptance might be my body. Uh, so I used to weigh about a hundred pounds more than I do now. And, you know, it was this really big decision I made when I was young to, to try to change it. But then when I tried to change it, it didn't, my body didn't change the way that I wanted it to be, uh, or the, the vision that I had right about what my body would look like. Like, Oh, if I just lost weight, if I just lost a hundred pounds, like my body will look like XYZ person. Mm -hmm. But in reality, um, a hundred pound weight loss for me didn't really look the way that I wanted it to. Um, so I still struggle. Like I have an amazing body and I go through like all sorts of polarity where I'm super cool with it. I'm really grateful mm -hmm. for my body. And then other times where I'm really, really disappointed in the way that it looks because it doesn't look the way that I always want it to. Oh. Um, and that's just a constant ex battle of acceptance. Like it doesn't look the way I wanted to, but I can do a lot of things. And then as I train and as I get more fit and as I do more things, uh, I start to like my body more, but still mm. it's like this often this really complicated relationship around, I guess I accept it because I love it. And I'm grateful yeah. for all the things that my body can do and has done for me in the places that we've been able to go together. But I still think I always have this romantic idea of like, if I just keep going or in six months and I'm really fit, it'll look different. But you know, I'm like, I'm 33 and it's pretty much always kind of the same. So I still have this like fantasy idea of what my body's going to look like when I really stick to this or that or another thing. But, um, it's kind of like acceptance. I accept my body, but it doesn't always mean that I'm in a super happy, high, loving, yeah. peaceful yeah. way about it. It just is what it is. That is what it is. You know, um, I'll, I'll, as I said to you earlier, before we started our recording, my 32 year old wife, as she walked out the door today to her shift at the coffee shop and she's studying cause she's going to Arizona state online. She went back to school. And, um, so she's doing things to become her strongest and, and truest self. And, um, when we watched, I'll talk a little bit about this and I'm going to share a quote that, that I wanted to ask you about later, but this seems like a good time. So we watched that free hub magazine, short film. I did identity and endurance uh, about your story stronger together. And I watched it this morning and I watched it last night and I cried both times. Um, I, I, I looked over like I'm, I'm a weepy dude, Alexandra, like I'm a weepy mm -hmm. dude. And I cried both times. My, my wife, uh, I looked over at her two or three times in that 19 minute film. I think it was 19 minutes she cried. And as she walked out the door, her last words to me was tell Alexander hi and tell her she's a badass. <laughs> like, uh, so, so, um, you know, I, I think I, working with athletes, um, there's something called IFS, internal family systems, parts work. And in parts work, they say that parts come in pairs where there's lightness, there's darkness, you know, pluses and minuses. Uh, there's two edges of the sword. And, and so what I would say to that is, I think we all have that, that those different parts. So you've got the part that is grateful and feels so good. And then you've got other parts that are more critical. And I think 
the, the key is when you can recognize those parts and unblend from it a little bit and try and get in touch with that true self and, and wise mind um, and, and check in there. I think often when we're... Um, I probably shouldn't give my daughter's gold away. My daughter was struggling with something yesterday and <laughs> we talked about, we talked about um, what she was dealing with. And I said, you know, that's, that's your ego self. Like that's not your true self or, or wise mind. Cause you know who you are and what you're about. And you have this quote uh, I'm going to share because it's, this is one of the places we cried last night and this morning in the film. And I highly encourage everybody to, to check out that free hub short. You can find it on Netflix, Identity and Endurance with Alexandra Houchin, Stronger Together. Okay, so your quote, I think about a million things when I'm racing. I think about my body the most and how in my day-to-day -day life, I'm disappointed in my body. But when I'm racing, I'm so in love with my body. Uh, when I'm on the bike, I feel divine feminine. I just feel so sexy on the bike. Uh, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I, I love this quote um, because of what you acknowledged about just how resilient your body is and how capable and strong your body is. As a cycling coach and as a cycling myself who's dealing with an Achilles flare right now, who's dealt with so many tendinopathies, I've been so blown away by you following your rise over the years, just as far as your body, like how you are able to do things. Most mortals and most cyclists who are training 12, 10 to 12 hours a week can't even imagine. Like, so, um, yeah, I'd love to explore that a, a little more. I just, your, your ability to be raw and real and vulnerable, I think is whether it's the mission or not is impacting and inspiring a lot of people, a uh, uh, 40-year-old dude and certainly a 32-year-old <laughs> bride, my, my wife and, and my 15-year-old daughter. And so, um, yeah, I would love to see if you'd be willing to expand upon that a little bit or talk a little more about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of layers to that, too. You know, the like my divine feminine, my divine womanhood, a lot of cycling for me, a lot of my cycling life and cycling community has been when... Uh, one of being surrounded by a lot of dudes like a lot of times early especially early on in my cycling career uh, I was the token chick in the in the group of people that was riding so it was finally or the, it was this place where I realized that there is this just this difference with me and then my like my biker dude friends um, and that, that was some place where I really explored my femininity because it was like super clear. And I had this pretty safe space with all my cyclist friends to really explore it. Um, because I was having trouble when I was younger, like feeling super feminine. I did, I, I was welding and I was often in these spaces where, like I was, what I was good at wasn't necessarily like the feminine thing, even though I feel like a girl, I feel like a chick, girl, woman, sometimes kid, other times it's like all these, this different spectrum of womanhood for me, but everything that I had been told through media or all the books that I read or whatnot, it was like all the things that I liked and was a part of wasn't necessarily feminine. And then once I found the cycling, which didn't really seem super feminine, really allowed me to explore like the all the parts of myself and that's where I was like oh no matter what I like to do that's just like who I am and what I'm about 
Um, so like the levels of femininity really, I was able to explore that on the bike and in the spaces of doing hard things on the bike where, you know, I think about my body and all the things that I was capable of as a woman. And I think that, you know, I, I lack, sometimes I lack the same fitness, you know, like I ride, for example, I ride bikes with my boyfriend all the time. He's strong as hell. Um, and often, um, often he's faster than me, you know, like we're riding together for the first 24 hours or something. He's faster than me. But then at some point it's like my endurance and my mental game allows me to kind of pick up where their fitness leaves off. And I don't know. I've had lots of talks with my girlfriends about how women are just like natural endurance athletes. Uh, because can you like, I was, oh, I was reading some article about pregnancy and what it does to the mm -hmm. body and oh, how yeah. it's like yeah. the equivalent. Physiologically, of, yeah. Yeah, it's like the equivalent of, you know, doing a marathon. You know, I can't remember what the article said, but it was a really great article that talked about uh, or it made parallels between pregnancy and endurance sports. And just yeah. think about like nine months of carrying a human, yeah. like how, uh, you know, women have are just like inherently um have this special skill um that maybe we can tap into so what kind of tapped into that a lot more in my cycling of not so much being like oh i'm a woman so i'm slower or oh you know this and this and this about my womanhood is holding me back but more so about all the advantages i have um so many, so many advantages. Woman. My daughter, um, we follow Stacy Sims' work, Dr. Sims, pretty closely, and uh, she helped me with this. Uh, my daughter's a swimmer. She's a competitive swimmer. She races mountain bikes as well. She'll run track in the spring, but she'll do these open water events. And um, she just had a great state meet at the high school level, freshman in high school. And she gets frustrated, especially in the pool, as you can imagine, when she's during her menstrual cycle and, and, mm -hmm. and her period. And, and Dr. Sims has helped me to to hype Kamaya up, I tell her, this is your superpower. And so, uh, yeah, no, I do think um, physiologically women have this, uh, I, one of the great endurance cyclists of this generation as far as the ultra marathon, mountain bike, national championships, Leadville, not, not your level of the ultra endurance going days and days and days, but Rose Grant, I just had, had on and, and she was just talking about how a part of her was a little disappointed that she didn't get to pursue the UCI, you know, the cross country hour, hour and 20 minute races okay. more. And, but she just realized physiologically speaking, she just had this engine and you, you certainly uh, have an engine to be able to pull off all that you've been pulling off over the years. Um, I appreciate how you make these. I talk often about I think the pursuit of happiness is overblown. I don't think we should be pursuing happiness as much as we should meaningful adventures, purposeful endeavors, connection to people, the people and places that matter most to us. Could you talk to us a little bit about um, just growing up and, and ending up back, back where you are now on the Fond du Lac Reservation and um, just as far as your connection to place and people, your community? Yeah, and I, I might actually We'll see what you just said kind of made me think about something I've been thinking about. Yeah, go wherever you want to go. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, not necessarily this pursuit of happiness. I was, I was talking to my partner um, who's non-native and we were back, we were just back home in Cloquet on the reservation um, doing a bunch of community stuff. And uh, we tell as Anishinaabe, as Ojibwe people, uh, storytelling is super integral to our lifestyle and our way of being and our way of knowing. And uh, we also only tell those stories seasonally and the most sacred and important stories that we tell can only be told in the winter time when there's snow on the ground. So we had this huge event in my tribal community. Uh, it was a gala where everybody just got dressed to the nines. Everyone was looking so sexy and so good. And it was so fun just to see people get stoked on dressing up. And it was an evening of storytelling. We had a feast and storytelling in the Ojibwe language and Every time I get into my community and I, I, every time I go home, every time I'm visiting, I get to be a part of some, you know, some ceremonial events usually. And then that's the, that's the place where I hear our language being spoken. And I start thinking about all these really complex things as a native person. I was trying to explain to Johnny um, and he's a great partner and we get to have all these really deep conversations, but this thing I experienced as a native person, as a native woman, as a young native, youngish, <laughs> young native woman, um, this really big sense of responsibility to ensure that future generations of Anishinaabeg have access to the things that I've had access to. So culture, language, ceremony, land, place, stories, like all the things that I have access to that have allowed me to live the life that I am living and to be the person that I am. Like, I feel this really deep sense of responsibility, uh, you know, and it's really complicated. I, I think about, you know, I should have children so that I can make sure there's more Ojibwe children in the world. But then there's also this really weird, complicated thing around blood quantum and identity within tribal people. So like as a younger woman, that was really something that was heavy on my mind. Um, but like, you know, we've chosen not to have children and then thinking about like, okay, well now what responsibility do I have? Because I'm not going to um, ensure that future generations exist if I'm not doing this, but feeling like a really deep biological responsibility to do these things and I feel it heavy in my tribal community and it's um, something I've talked a lot with my native friend talked about a lot with my native friends but once I leave my tribal community I find it more infrequent where people seem um, to often lack that feeling of deep responsibility to do xyz um, and I and that's just like one thing about being a native, a native person that I experience. You know, I go home, I see all this stuff. I'm like, oh, what the, f what the hell am I doing racing my bike across the country or like all the other work that I'm doing pulls me away from my home all the time. And every time I go home, I'm like, oh, I should be here. This is where my culture is. This is where my languages are. This is where my people are and the ceremony. But for some reason the pull is taking me away. So maybe, you know, I don't know what the path is. I just yeah. trust that the path I'm supposed to follow it. But, um, 
you know, what you said about not necessarily pursuing a life of happiness, but, you know, I think it's like happiness is so relative. I always call it these certain things, low hanging fruits, yeah. like, you know, just because there's a cake there doesn't mean it's going to make, it might make me happy like when I'm drinking my coffee, but in two weeks when I have to deal with the extra poundage, I'm not really happy I ate the cake. So I'm um, just understanding the low hanging fruits and what's worth it um, in the long term. You know, the, I, I think I, those are the deep, meaningful things that end up making us happy. Not always the chocolate cake, but... I think you said it beautifully about uh, happiness to me is like success. It's a matter of, it's re it's all relative <laughs> and it's a matter yeah. of perspective. And, and I, I do think from afar and somebody who's, uh, we'll have to get you uh, my, my first book, Grizzlies on My Mind, the first essay mm -hmm. in Grizzlies on My Mind, uh, my book of essays about my time in Yellowstone. So Yellowstone National Park, I was a ranger in Yellowstone. Um, and uh, there's 26 tribes associated with Yellowstone National Park. Yellowstone National Park was the first national park uh, worldwide, 1872. And there was 26 tribes utilizing Yellowstone National Park before it was set aside for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, you know, and, and, and um, Yellowstone is a sacred place uh, to, to, to many. It's sacred to me, but it's certainly sacred to the indigenous people of this region. And uh, I think the way you go about what you do, uh, your adventures, re reading your blog over the years, your, your adventures seem to be very meaningful. I feel like uh, meaningful adventures, purposeful endeavors, connection to the people and place that, places that matter most to you. You seem to do a, a really beautiful job of being thoughtful and grounded and present about that. And I know that the living in both worlds can be quite cha challenging. Uh, my, 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 my niece, I believe she's the only white kid at her school. They live up on the Blackfeet Reservation um, out, outside of Browning. And she doesn't like to leave the res. It's just home, you know, and um, and yet I know even my sister and my brother-in-law who are as Caucasian as they come, but work in the community, um, have some of those same feelings when they go on a vacation or what have you is, oh, there's work to be done at home. And so I think you bring such a, an awareness to the issues that matter most to you and seem to do a great job of fostering that connection at home, but then in your other community as well. So I, I, I commend you for that. Well, it's, I mean, it's so much about community, yeah. uh, well, both communities. The reason yeah. I'm able to leave and maintain this relationship with my community back home is equal as much a part of me as it is the people who love me and support me and say, hey, we hate to see you go, but you got to go do this stuff and yeah. we'll be yeah. here when you get back. Um, so feeling love and support from my community, even though I can't always be there right now. And, you know, yeah, I have all these huge aspirations, you know, like I want to learn how to speak Ojibwe better. I want to do learn so many more things and be a part of so many more things and be able to give back. But I'm just like not in that phase of my life journey right now and having my community back home. So supportive, lift me up. You know, they share my stories when I'm out doing good things and they're in times of bad. And same with the cycling community, you know, you say, or it, it, at least you've recognized that the the journey process has become way more meaning meaningful to me over the years of like, at first it was just this abstract idea. I was going to go ride my bike because I wanted to learn about places, but 
riding my bike took me to these deeper places within myself and being a part of the ultra cycling community, the people who are doing these really long distance races with me have been so supportive and loving and encouraging people that I felt like I could be this version of myself. I felt like I could explore these really complicated things and then have space to talk about it and for people to listen, you know? So it's like not in a vacuum. It's not me just coming in and doing all these amazing things. It's feeling safe and supported enough to be able to share these stories or share my journey or share, you know, bits and pieces of what it looks like as like, I'm just one native chick uh, in the cycling scene. While we're on that topic, um, I don't, I've read so much of your stuff here of late and watched all the videos we can, we can get our eyes on. So I don't remember where I heard this uh, and it may have been in that film, but I loved something you said recently that I found, and it certainly resonated deeply with me, uh, about racing for you being ceremonial. Um, mm-hmm. c- could you yeah, expand a little more on that? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's been one of the most meaningful things that has uh, made an impact in my life. So first off, I really tr- try not to be reactionary, even though I have reactions a lot of times, like, that I don't love, but you know, that's me, but mostly having stayed off of social media and off of like really easily accessible platforms where I could accidentally get myself in trouble by just like throwing this thing that I felt right away out into the world. Instead I have to like, or I choose to spend more time thinking and really understanding what it is I'm thinking and why I'm thinking that. And, um, so, I don't know. So I grew up away from my tribal community. I grew up away from a lot of our cultural practices, a lot of ceremony. It wasn't something that I got introduced to until I was older in my 20s, where I was able to participate in some of our traditional Ojibwe ceremonies. And, you know, certain things happen in those ceremonies and there's um, order and structure and relationships and all sorts of different things that are occurring in a ceremonial space and in a ceremonial moment. Um, and I was able to participate in some of those in my own community. And then as I started doing more and more races, learning, uh, learning and understanding about my own body, learning and understanding what the course was and who the people of the, that area were and understanding this responsibility I have as an Anishinaabe Kwe, an Ojibwe woman to show our Manidu, like our spirits, ancestors, it's a, a really big word, Manidu, um, to show that we're still here doing things as Anishinaabe always have. So when I go into these spaces, even though they're not necessarily in my homeland, like I believe that my relatives and ancestors know and see that we're there as long as, you know, I'm offering um, Asema tobacco yeah. Yeah. and being a, a good relative. So I started thinking about the the race as an opportunity to incorporate some of my less some of the lessons I've learned through my cultural teachings and um, ceremonial spaces. I was like, well, why can't I 
have ceremony in this way because this is what it it looks like for me and this is something I really like to talk about with people because we change and we evolve and as things and time those journeys you're on are transformative those are transformative journeys you're on in those races yeah absolutely and just you know it's like using a different tool to do the job like you know 100 200 years ago bikes weren't like the way that they are now but i wrote one article where i was like i i'd like to think that if you know my ancestors had awesome mountain bikes like i have now they'd be doing some of the same shit i'm doing so um just thinking about my indigeneity is this contemporary ongoing alive thing where i'm like okay i'm going to bring my indigenous self my ceremonial self into these ceremonial spaces and occupy the ultra race as a native person with this way that i do things and it doesn't matter how other people do it or if other people do it in a way like me that's i don't care but i can at least be me out there and it's helped me make way better choices um in in my ultra racing career because i'm like even though you know like for example um uh, ceremony and video recording like there's been lots of controversy in ultra racing over film crew support not support like a lot of drama has uh, occurred there and within my community and I just like never had to encounter that because I have like my spiritual teachings where like hey we don't record ceremony so it's like because I approach cycling at ceremony it wouldn't even occur to me to invite a video camera because that's just not what we do. It's super important, super sacred. And it's something that you do for yourself. So like you go by yourself and that's just like one example. I think of how my, uh, indigeneity has really guided me towards making, um, good, good choices um, in cycling space. It sounds like wherever you go, you really foster that sense of place, that honoring of place, that honoring of the experience. I believe there's unmatched power in sport uh, and and I believe there's unmatched power in wild places. uh, And you you seem like you do such a beautiful job of of blending those two together uh, in these meaningful adventures, uh, in these ceremonial races. Well, there's so there's so much history to place into the people who have moved through the places and lived in certain places and just kind of being a person that can or chooses to look at a different narrative than we see, you know, like I go on bike tours a lot and you see signs yeah. like this place was discovered in 1854 or, you know, <laughs> ridiculous exactly. stuff like that. Yeah. Or even, you know, when you talk about West Yellowstone and the, all the different, um, or I don't, I, I spent yeah. a season working in West Yellowstone, okay. uh, or I, I worked in West Yellowstone. So I don't know if you actually said West Yellowstone, but, um, but you think about the native people and the first national park and like, you know, every time I see a national park or a national forest, like I ha- do experience like a really visceral feeling because everybody's like, oh, I'm. I'm a public landowner or, you know, I have, 
I had all of this, which is amazing. I utilize public land, but also there's like a really messed up traumatic history and how that uh, land came into the United States. Became public. Yeah. Yeah. So like I experience and live in public lands mostly right now. Um, So I benefit from it, but I also do feel like I feel both of these pulls, like this really traumatic sense of loss um, for a lot of people. Yeah. Like you say, those those parts come in pairs. Uh, one of the bumper stickers that always drives me the crazy is I, I started talking about my book, Grizzlies on My Mind. The first mm-hmm. essay, the second essay is called Medicine Warrior. And it's about yeah. uh, an Assiniboine, Assiniboine Grovant elder who took me under his wing during a very challenging time. He's one of the main characters in book number one and three. And, uh, you know, he took me to his tribe. He took me to his people and... Uh, helped me to heal and uh you know he he would be the first to when he saw a sticker that somebody said montana native uh we'd call that one out real quick so that that's always one that's uh you know you know you, you spoke about in, in in the films like you talk about your relationship to place you here, here you spoke about growing up um in wisconsin and mm-hmm. one of my favorite people here in Bozeman, he's our football coach. I was with him on, on Friday night and he's a Cinnaboyne. So his people are from Fort Belknap. And he was talking about, uh, you know, the Indian Relocation Act of 1956 and, and his grandparents being moved to Oakland, California. And just these, this, the, you know, the government moving indigenous people, native peoples to mm-hmm. cities to try and assimilate them and just what that did to his family. They're now back on the res- on the reservation, and he's here in Bozeman, and very you know they're very connected to their to their people, to their place, um, to their traditions, to their their stories. Um, but yeah, I can only imagine <laughs> that's uh, got to be a big factor of why you didn't grow up where you are now. Oh, a hundred percent. And I can't. I also can't talk about this enough. Just. The pretty consistent consecutive eras of assimilation imposed upon Native people by the federal government, uh, just like my own life, my mother's life, it, you know, back in the 1950s to 1970s or so, there was uh, the Indian Adoption Project, which I talk about a lot in the Stronger Together film. Um, but, you know, it was like the federal government was intentionally looking to remove native children from their native communities and place them with intentionally non-native parents, which was, you know, contrary to the practice of that time, at least back, back in those, those times, they would try to do cultural match between adoptees and adoptive parents. But it was uh, definitely one of the go, I think it's like something like 30, 35, 30 or 35 percent of Native kids from like 1950 to 1970 were removed from their tribal communities. Um, And my mom was adopted in the 1970s before the Indian Child Welfare Act. So she uh, had a closed adoption. Information on her birth certificate and whatnot was redacted. So she didn't have any... um, direct way to find out her tribal affiliation even though she knew she's native she she looks native (laughs) um whatever we want to say that is and her and her sister were the only two native people that grew up in the town they did but that you know that was 
one era in the 1950s to 1970s, but there's also allotment and relocation and termination and all these other different federally Im implemented policies trying to dissolve the indigenous families. But, you know, despite and, and, that... And as, and, and as you, rec you just, just acknowledged, 1956, the Indian Relocation Act, 1970s, I mean, it's not, 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 very, not that long ago. Oh, definitely not. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I, yeah. I wrote a piece for um, this project I've been working on with a couple of my girlfriends called The Town Bicycle. But I wrote a piece on that website kind of about ceremony and contemporary, you know, my argument for contempo contemporary indigenous ceremony still being alive, but talking about the Indian Religious Freedom Act, which wasn't enacted mm -hmm. until mm -hmm. 1978, I believe, uh, which is really not that long ago. Uh, so thinking about like that's one lifetime where it was still um, not federally legal to practice, practice indigenous your, yeah. ceremonies. Um, so just talking about these things as if, you know, I've had people say and heard people say like, oh, it's happened. It's in the past. Like, move on. Totally happened in the past, but it's still very, it's very still alive. Happening. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in our still very in our alive. families, you're still living lives. it. Your mother's still living it. Yeah, uh, totally. So, uh, I I do appreciate talking about these things and just like educating ourselves about it. You know, I didn't necessarily even know about the depths to which Native kids were being removed from their families until I started to ask myself these deeper questions. Of like, why is my mom the way she is? Why? this the way like why is our relationship this way and once I started going down those wormholes of being like oh well this happened and you know it manifests in our bodies like this and so on and so forth uh, so it just really made me curious to understand just like just curious by nature I ask a lot of questions and I'm pretty skeptical about yeah. most things um, and curious to find out the answer curiosity is a good place to operate from um yeah, yeah. I, i've heard i've heard you say again i just love how you speak of your race experience as ceremonial um i've heard you say i think for anybody who's trained for any kind of event there's always some letdown after it but but ceremony as as you know is powerful so i'd love to hear you expand a little bit upon something you've said where you say you see often feel super sad um, after one of those experiences and, and how that when you're racing, um, you know, that, that you feel like that's when you're really able to love yourself. And I'm wondering how you're doing as far as trying to find that balance that you speak of so eloquently as far as respecting and loving yourself at home as well as when you're racing the bike where you might be more in that ceremonial flow state, that sacred space. Yeah, so I think it's a lot of, um, I, I think, thinking back to that film that I worked on where I said I really struggle in my day-to-day -day life and really thrive in my bike racing life, a lot of that had to do with this pull of doing what I think I should do versus doing what I need to do. And for a really long time, uh, I was even, I was dealing with a lot of these really complex identities within myself of like, you know, I have my own savior syndrome, white savior syndrome, um, where I was like, 
I have all these things within me where I'm like, I have this privilege and I have this privilege and it's my responsibility to do something with that privilege, even if it means that I don't necessarily get to be as happy as I want to. So one of those things for me was um, the pursuit. I was trying to be a doctor of dental medicine for quite a long time. Um, I did my undergraduate in chemistry and American Indian studies. So that's where I was able to really um, spend a lot of time researching federal Indian policy and uh, learning a lot about different other tribes as well as my own tribe, but also studying chemistry because I was going to go to dental school. So I was like, I'm going to do the, the Native American thing because I'm curious and want to learn more and to have space and milestones through academia to investigate that. But then also I'm going to do the chemistry because you have to have all these pre-med things to get into dental school. And it was easy enough during that time to nurture the curiosity and then the responsibility parts of my same, myself at the same time, but then also have all these summers free to, to do the bike thing, which really was a way for me to give back to myself. And then doing the studying in school was a way for me to give back to my community. But every year as I got closer and closer to getting to uh, dental school, I started really feeling this, like, okay, at some point I'm going to have to give up the cycling thing. At some point I'm not going to be able to do this if, if I want to look at how I can be a better relative. And once I decided to just trust the path, that lie before me, I was able to decide to do the biking thing full time. So right now I'm doing the biking thing full time. And since I started doing that after the race, I don't really feel so sad because it's not this part of myself that I only have to leave out there. That makes sense. Yeah. It's this part of myself that I've now really embodied where, um, I think that this is the way I can best be myself. I think about all the work I was doing in my travel community. I was working for my travel government and within my travel government and just feeling like a gray, dull version of myself. And every, like every time I talk to somebody, they're like, Oh, you just light up when you talk about bikes or when you talk about the bike races or when you talk about all this bike stuff that you're super into. And that's when people see me and notice me and listen to me is when I'm light and bright and fully alive talking about something I really care about. And then noticing that in the times when I was denying myself that space of my bike world, I was just like a gray, dull, lackluster version of myself, kind of just like zombie pedaling through life, which like there's enough. <laughs> there, I think there's, there's enough of that out, out there. When your true self and wise mind can tell you that, I think you're given a gift not only to your people, but to the world by putting that that light out there. Uh, it could be because when you're lit up, you're lighting other people up, Alexandra. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, so I just think that it was this really, since the Stronger Together film came out, I've made a lot of big changes in my life. Like the week they came out to film that, I was working two jobs and like my dog had died. Then there was like so much shit going on that week where I was like, I can't 
do all of this and just being really honest about how when I'm on the bike and doing the bike race and bike ride thing, I just am so happy and impressed and strong and like using my body and brain for what I feel like I was made to do versus being in domestic society. I just feel like a tamed trapped version of myself. So, um, feeling this like really complicated nuance feeling about being like, I hate who I am when I'm here because I, (laughs) because I can turn my water, my sink on and fill up a glass of water instead of having to carry it or to look for it or having like all the food in my fridge. Like that is so, I have very little self control. So, uh, you know, I've, things have changed for me since that film came out, which is another cool thing to look back and be like, wow. Yeah. A lot of growth, a lot of growth. That sounds like, well, let's, let's light you up here a little bit. Um, let's, let's talk just a bit about the uh, 12 days, a challenging ride on the Arizona trail. Um, your ride, your win last year, uh, this is an 800 ish plus mile Arizona trail race. And I believe you set the women's single speed record in the process. Uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about that experience. Yes. The Arizona trail is definitely one of my favorite bike races of all time. Um, and I've really developed a, a long relationship with the Arizona trail. How um, many times I've have gone... you participated in that one, Alexander? Uh, the whole 800 mile route. I, one year, three times, roughly three times. So the first year I did wow. it in 2018, um, I got off the course in Flagstaff, um, due to forest fires. So I did, I don't know, maybe 80% of the Arizona trail that first year in 2018. And then in 2021 and 2022, I did the whole 800 mile thing. And then there's like a, a smaller section, the lower 300 miles, which I've ridden a lot more times, um, more I don't know, five or six full times and then just like tour on sections of it. What Um, was it in 2022? What was it last year that kind of had you lit up and ready to pop one off and go get that single speed (laughs) record of the process? Well, there's a couple things about that. So the course changed, um, got a little bit longer in 2021 and the grand depart the race date turned from spring to fall so it used to be the arizona trail 750 and now it's the 800 so officially as of 2021 because it was a new course like all the records got erased even though if you look back you know like kurt Snyder has the overall record on the arizona trail 750 at like six six and a half days or something like that and maybe like you know, a good chunk of it has changed. So maybe like add an extra day on there, but still like that puts really fast times on the Arizona trail at like seven or eight days um, for this route. But because the whole course changed, all the new records were low hanging fruits. So in 2021, technically I was (laughs) the first single speed overall to finish, but I finished, I was like wrote it with, two of my friends and I had been, I had uh, had a rock climbing accident and I fell like 10 or 15 feet. Oh, wow. 
and tore two ligaments in my foot um, about seven days before the race was to start. And against my better judgment, I... Like, There's not I many needed... humans on this earth, Alexander, that would have lined up for that bike race uh, seven days was, after that. It was a pretty bad idea because my foot was pretty jacked and I was having a really hard time moving at all. Um, and then especially you have to carry your bike on your back through the Grand Canyon. So almost like, yeah, it's... I think it's 22 miles. It's almost a marathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like 7,000 feet of elevation gain. Um. So that really hurt, but it took me 15 days. I fell in love with my boyfriend on that. You know, we met and fell in love during that race. And not like, you know, not a record, but you know, I showed up and I finished. So I got that. And then this year, um, only, there were only two women racing the whole 800 and it was my friend, uh, Anna and myself and we rode different courses. So, one of the things, because I'm such a, a freak purist about the Arizona Trail and ultra racing in general, it's like there's this highway section up Mount Lemon that is part of the current course. Um, but over the last few years, my friends and I have been scouting and doing recon on the single track trails just on the other side of Mount Lemon. So this year, five of my closest friends uh, – decided that we were going to hike our bikes up Mount Lemon on the trail instead of taking the paved highway. So Anna took the highway nice. and I took the trail, okay. Okay. Um, which pretty much put about a 12 hour gap. It took about 12 extra hours to go up the trail put a 12 hour gap between us. So she totally finished before me. Uh, I think about 10 hours before me. Um, but I was on a single speed. She was on a geared bike. Yeah. How, how much, how much do the, how much the results matter to you as far as the experience? Like how much of the results, if at all, define the experience for you? Are you able to, you seem to really be able to separate that quite well. Yeah. I mean, the results matter to me to an extent, to the extent of how I relate to my community. Um, it's not necessarily about like being first overall or being first in this way or first in that way or whatever. But for example, you know, pushing up the Mount Lemon thing, I went into this relationship with the five other people or the four other people who also decided to do this. So um, part of community building is totally talking shit and hanging out with my friends and being like, oh, I'm faster than you or oh, you know, because we know each other over all of this time. So results matter to me in the sense that I want to know how hard my people like my community, my people are pushing and I want them to know how hard I'm pushing to be like the best self. So mm -hmm. there's Beautiful. this sense of like the results matter in the way of like, Hey, I know what you're capable of and you didn't deliver here. So yeah. we can still like heckle each other. <clears throat> but ultimately I don't really care if I get first or last, Yeah. but um, I do know like what I'm capable balance. of. Well, I know what I'm capable yeah. of, and when I yeah. don't achieve yeah. that, yeah, it's really disappointing. There's going to be frustrated parts. There's disappointed parts. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime you don't achieve. I mean, my 15-year-old daughter just got a respiratory illness right before the state swim meet and mm -hmm. didn't have the times. And I said, don't let these results define your experience. Well, there was massive disappointment. You know, she was in the shower for 30 minutes and then came out and collapsed into my chest, you know, in tears. So, yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's I, I'm a big believer in you know, as a motivator, as an inspirer, I think some of the parents were 
surprised I didn't try and fix it right away. And I just said, let's just sit with this. Let's honor this. Like you've worked so hard. Like let's sit with this pain. Like I'm going to cry with you. Like we just sat there and cried. One of the moms was kind of asked about that. Like, well, and I said, no, we're going to on to the next before her next race. Like we, we, we got her head in the right, her mind in the right place before the next race, but no, we weren't, we were going to sit and honor this. So I think that's a, uh, important part of not just celebrating the, the victories, big and little, but also honoring the, the disappointment, the, you know, the heart, the heartache, the heartbreak. She felt in the words of Rose Grant, she felt betrayed by her body. You know, she felt just like, yeah, like her body just let her down. And as beautiful as, as sports can be, they can be equally, uh, painful and heartbreaking and unjust, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, yeah, I think it's important to honor that aspect as well. It to it hurts so bad. And I think about, you know, the Arizona trail, race this year, for example, in the time before the race started, I had just not really been present. I've been traveling a lot for speaking gigs and um, just transitioning from our life in Minnesota down to Arizona for the winter and um, just like in this really chaotic state before the race and had switched sponsors, was trying out some new bike stuff. And made a pretty big mistake as far as the gear um, or as far as what I packed and knowing my tools for the ride and uh, had a mechanical about 400 miles in. Um, I ran out of brake pads because I had the wrong kind of brake pads <laughs> and there's no bike shops on course. Um, well, actually there was a bike shop when I first kind of noticed that it was a problem. And I was like, Oh, I'll be able to make it the rest of the race with these brake pads. When in reality, I should have gone to that bike shop, got extra brake pads, yada, yada. But anyways, uh, once I realized the extent of my mistake, I had been, I'd been working on closing that gap with Anna, which was really fun. You know, she, she gained about 12 to 14 hours on me when I was going up that highway and I was like dead set on chasing her down um, and I was gaining and I was getting within like two or three hours of her. And then I had this mechanical and it screwed up my entire game plan, my whole life. And I was forced to just slow down and I crawled underneath a tree and just cried. And I was devastated hmm. um, because I knew what I needed to do well, to were, achieve. You knew what you were capable of and it just, it was cruel. <laughs> That's cruel. Yeah. yeah. So sports could be cruel. It was cruel. just heartbreaking. And part of the reason I was heartbroken was because I just did this catastrophic thing where I was like, I might not be able to ever catch her because I wanted to catch her and I wanted to yeah. be her just out of respect for yeah. how amazing of an athlete she is. So once I realized that kind of went out the window and that we were just both left to riding our own rides in our own different courses, I was trying to, yeah, I really wanted to ride that the harder course and to still overall win um just to make a point it's like shortcuts are now we shortcuts it was the race course like yeah, no yeah, yeah no hate for the people that chose to ride up the highway but you know it's the easier are we racing the same yeah. race if somebody mm, takes an no. easier path trying to set the bar really high because i know what the people in my community are and are made of so like trying to do these things in a really good honest way with a high bar, you know, then that only leaves the option of 
people achieving at that high level and we can all be our yeah. best selves. Yeah. You definitely have, have high standards for for yourself and for the community. I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, ra- racing is so unstable and unpredictable and so much of it, despite our best efforts to have our minds and bodies ready is out of our control. And I appreciate you being able to acknowledge the heartbreak and, and the sometimes cruel feeling and that sense of betrayal. Um, last year, you also won the Colorado Trail Race, uh, I believe for the third time in a row, a 527 miler with that's 70 plus thousand feet of elevation gain, I want to say, over the course of six days. Uh, so yeah. tell, us a little, tell us a little bit about that one. Okay, that one is also one of my favorite races. And yeah. uh, I have won the women's race three years in a row. It wasn't happening. There was no grand depart. I think, I think that was 2020. So I did an individual time trial that year too. Um, have I think I've raced the Colorado Trail five years in a row. But three, I got second women uh, the first time I did it in 2018. And then I've won it every time since. Um, and that it was a really challenging race this year um, because Anna, also who we raced against each other in um, the Arizona Trail race, had just come off of winning the Tour Divide. And she's really, really strong and determined. Like, Physically strong and really, really strong. Yeah, really she's strong. Super mentally yeah, tough. Yeah, like, that's it. That gives you wings mentally coming off something like that with that strength for sure. Yeah, she's an incredible athlete and an incredible competitor. And, um, you know, I've ridden the course so many different times. So I have a really deep understanding of the course and my, how my body reacts to the curves at certain speeds and whatnot. So I went into the race, you know, being pretty chill about it. This, this year was really hard, or 2022 was a really challenging weather year. It was just really, really wet, um, which makes everything a lot harder. It's more muddy. The rocks are slippier. The slipperier. Yeah. The roots are slipperier. So it slows you down, and it's really mentally challenging just to be soaking wet every single day. Um. But Anna and I had a chance to ride together for a little bit in the middle of the race. And I pretty much, you know, because I have such a intimate understanding of the trail, I knew the moment where I was going to pass her just because I know what my strong points are as a cyclist and I know where my weak spots are. And there was a Were you anticipating up. that, Alexandra? Were you anticipating that? Or was that, was that kind of a plotted thing or was it something you were, you were feeling out as it was happening? Uh, I pretty much knew that I I had a pretty solid plan and everything was kind of sticking to the plan. So when I set out for the course, uh, we started in Denver and we were going to Durango this year. And it just kind of, when you go that way, it gets a little bit harder every day. So my race plan um, as a competitor, as I was relating to people, was to kind of just like hang on. You know, just kind of ride, but maybe at like 70% of my capability just to like be within an hour or so of the other women in the race. Um, and then once I kind of got to the halfway point up to Monarch Crest, um, I was like, okay, now I'm going to freak out and push it towards like the 90% of my capability. And when I was riding with Anna, uh, we had a really great time riding together and it was really fun to get to know her and to compliment her and just to 
witness and be in relationship, you know, see what it's like. You only get these glimpses of people in these races because you can only go as hard as you can. And when we're riding with each other, she's at the same amount of fatigue as I am. She's been out there as many days. It's just this really amazing, um, special connection that you get to have. And we rode together for a few hours. So I got to see what she was good at. And got to see her climb and how she ate and all these things. We got to learn about each other. But I was like, oh, there's a part coming up. Um, I'm a pretty good descender, like technical descender. So I knew that I was going to just like rally this climb. I was like, I knew this descent was coming. I was going to go like not touch the brakes, fly as fast as I could. And then I knew there was a the next water stop was there. And I was like, you know, I had this whole plan. And I was just going to try, my goal was to break her, you know, go through this section is a really challenging section, go through it as fast as I could and leave her in the dust. And of course, I did not leave her in the dust because she's really, really strong and amazing. And um, she, I, I passed her and she was behind me about an hour or two. And I uh, she never really let up the pressure. And then I got caught in a lightning storm in the San Juan mountains. Um, and it was absolutely terrifying to me. And I hunkered down and to get out of the lightning and thunder and she had passed me. Well, I must, I, I must've fallen asleep or something. It was terrifying and super traumatic and I was trying to go to sleep, but it was, so windy and wet and lightning and there's no shelter and I was just really scared and I must have dozed off because I woke up to her light coming past me um and we both um we were both at the gas station in Silverton uh it didn't open until 6 a.m so we kind of both had to wait for the gas station to open and then I left just like an hour before her and I dug 100 percent of myself, I gave a hundred percent of myself and tried as hard as I possibly could to finish before her. Um, and it paid off, but I definitely, wow. sounds like you really uh, buried yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think I slept for about two hours over a three day period. It was really hard. Wow. 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 Well, um, you know, you've talked about the ceremonial aspects of this race. I, you're, you're racing. I'm a big believer in the healing, healing power of rituals and routines. Uh, do yeah. you have any specific uh, pre-race rituals or, or rituals within the race that, that really anchor you during these multi-day uh, endurance fests? Um, yeah, I have tons. Um, of things I do before the race and in the moments leading up to the race. But one I, one I can give you um, that I'm happy to share is definitely my um, ritual of offering, um, of offering a SEMA when I'm taking water. Anytime I take something, it just makes me a little bit more aware of how much I use when I'm out there. So every time I need to fill up Every time I need to fill up my water, do you offer tobacco I, or what? Do you, yeah, yeah, tobacco. Uh, tobacco uh, a is our word for tobacco. Offer some okay. sort of mixture. Okay. I carry my medicine pouch with me so that yeah. I have it, and I, I'll often make some sort of blend of tobacco offering prayer stuff. And I just do that every time 
you know, if I have to break a tree branch for a fire or uh, if I need some help or if I'm just thinking about something or if I need some water, I just always uh, make an offering in that way of um, helps me be aware. At some point I run out of tobacco and I'm like, holy shit, I took a lot. Yeah. Um, but I never used to think about those things. You know, it's like water, I take it. But now I have an idea to, to find finiteness that's beautiful well i'm gonna hit you with some rapid fires here so we can get you on your way you might be right. 60 degrees down there i'm gonna get on the trainer today but i have a feeling you're gonna be able to get outside <laughs> and hit some dirt so what does the phrase be audacious mean to you you hear that be audacious what does that mean to you uh to be your unabashed self beautiful Beautiful. I love that. Uh, what's something you feel like you learned about yourself in 2022? You had a prolific race calendar in 2022. Not that you haven't every year here for many years, but is there anything you really felt like you learned about yourself in 2022 on or off the bike? Yeah, I, I learned that I belong in this cycling life that I've been building. Hmm. Mm, it was hard. Beautiful. Yeah, that was a hard. That yeah. was a hard thing because I felt pretty yeah. guilty for liking biking as much as I did and mm -hmm. wanting to mm -hmm. make it a priority. But mm. now I'm like, oh, it really matters. I feel like what I do matters. What's some advice you'd give to your twenty twenty year old self as far uh, as this journey? This journey you've been on. And I think you know. You, I've heard you say. I mean, shoot, you're a professional bike racer like that's not many people get to say that like that's gotta i think anybody's gonna feel a little bit of imposter syndrome early on in any kind of endeavor i felt that as an author as a speaker as a you know you give a ted talk so um yeah if you have any any words of wisdom for your younger self or some 20 year old aspiring to be like alexander houchin out there today <laughs> there's like two you know the one thing, there's no advice that I could ever, would ever have listened to when I was 20. There's like nothing I could have possibly told myself to make me think any which way. Um, so maybe in that sen sentiment of like, trust your gut and follow your heart. Mm. I mean, those two things yeah. are always yeah. right. I know there's a lot you're you're grateful for. You shared a lot, but if there was one thing you'd share here that you're grateful for today in your life, I uh, would love to hear that. Oh, geez. Um, I'm grateful for the people in my life who just love me mm -hmm. for everything I am and am not. And... Um, yeah, my my really close community of, yeah. you know, my my ten people. Your handfuls. Yeah. yeah, I'm super yeah. grateful that I feel enough love from them that I can kind of do all the rest of the stuff that I do. Oh, so happy you have such a strong strong community, such a good handful of people who who love on you big. Where can people learn more about you, Alexandra, and how can we support you? Oh well, let's see. Um, I actually, we were talking about social media earlier and I just hired somebody to help, um, help me with that just so that, um, I can share where I'll be, you know, I'm doing a lot more speaking and stuff. Um, so share where I'll, where I'll be and some of the stories, but, 
Um, I do have a website. It's called giwijaman.com. Uh, it's an Ojibwe word that means you are invited. And I, you know, it's an extension of like inviting you along for this journey that I'm on. Um, and then I pop up here and there doing writing and whatnot. I have been uh, making videos for Chumba USA. They're the, the nice, I've seen, brand. yeah. Yeah, sure. so I've started yeah, sure. um, giving them. They're your sponsor, them. yes? It seems like you've written for Chumba for many years, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're yeah. my sponsors, but it's more like they're yeah. my family at for this sure. point. Yeah. Um, so you get that, putting... you get that sense. We'll make sure we get your website. We'll get your blog, your website on yeah, the show I'll, notes I'll send... when, we, when we get that Yeah, out. I'll send I, I know, I've that. got it. I, I know it. I'm a, I'm a reader, yeah. So. Um, I appreciate yeah, your work. And I... I've been putting less on my blog there recently. I've been working on this website called The Town Bicycle with two of my girlfriends. Okay. Yeah. Um, just working to, it, we call it a women-driven bikes are awesome website. So okay. everything's like uh, donation. We're donating all of our time and energy. So I've been writing a lot for that and editing and making invitations. Um, so that's mostly where my work is right now. We'll get some eyeballs on that on that work. I want to thank you again for joining us today, Alexandra. It's been such a pleasure to share this time and space with you. We're going to be watching your races. To watch your races, it's watching the, the tracker. You know, it, it's not quite as visual, but they're fun to watch. So we'll be watching from afar and following your work as you bring awareness to your tribe, to indigenous peoples, to the communities that, that, that matter to you. And we're hoping for a healthy, strong, and many sacred rides for you in 2023 and beyond. I'm really grateful you took the time out of your schedule to make this connection today. And I'm confident that our conversation and your story will add value, uplift, and inspire our listeners. So ahui ho uh, until we meet again. Uh, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, that's a wrap on another episode of the Bounce Forward podcast with nothing but love. I'm Michael Leach. Ride those waves, my friends. Ride those waves. Keep treading water and just don't quit. Until next time, dig deep, lean in, and stay true. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, visit the episode page at beaudacious.com, where you can also dive into my blog, my books, and my performance coaching. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple or Spotify, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a positive review or a comment. And if you've got a question, you can email me at michael at beaudacious.com. And I'd be grateful if you'd give me some grace as I am a work in progress, as is this podcast. And please spread the word. Share this episode or any other that resonates with family and friends. And let's grow and become our strongest and truest selves together. That's it. we ho, my friends. I appreciate the love and support. Until next time, head up, eyes forward, feet moving.